everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today we're going to be talking about a topic that I feel has been on all Austinites' minds lately, which is, why is housing so expensive here? I moved to Austin back in 2013, pretty much fresh out of college, and as long as I can remember, this has been a dominant topic of conversation in the city, but over the past year, it seems like things have reached even another level of craziness. Now, I have a small confession to make about this. I am a world-class eavesdropper. (laughs) I know it's not a great habit, but I cannot help myself, and any time that I've actually been able to leave my house in the past year... I've overheard Austinites talking about rising housing prices at every coffee shop, bar, and restaurant around town. And when you look at the numbers, it's not surprising to see why. An article from KUT in June had the headline, Home prices in Austin rose $100,000 in six months. When will the surge end? And that was citing data from the Austin Board of Realtors. Right now, that same data shows that the median home sales price in Austin is about $575,000. Now, those are all a lot of numbers, but what does this really look like in real life? To get a better picture, I spoke earlier this month with Jennifer Carey, who's a realtor in Austin who works with the Open House Austin team, which specializes in serving first-time homebuyers. Let's listen in on that conversation. But we are still seeing it's a very competitive market. You know, prices have definitely increased kind of in an astronomical way in the last 12 months. Um, We look at the median sales price, uh, both in city of Austin and in what we call the Austin Round Rock MSA, which is a larger grouping. Um, And we've we've seen increases of up to 40% appreciation year over year, which translates to sometimes over $100,000 increase. Um, So I think that is the biggest takeaway. while, you know, the amount of cash that you need and how quickly homes are selling, you know, three to four days on market is really important that the sales price is really what's startling to me. Yeah. So I want to break some of that down. So you talked about the increase in the, um, you know, you said about 40% and that's the past year ish. It seems like this year, you know, always I've lived in Austin for, I don't know, about 10 ish years now. And I feel like always the topic of conversation is it's getting more expensive in Austin and housing is getting more expensive. But this year seems to be an even crazier jump than I've seen recently. Is that accurate or? Okay. I mean, it makes past years almost feel like a breeze. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, the the median sales price in Austin uh, right now, based on the most recent data is 610. Wow. Which, you know, generally speaking, Four to five hundred thousand is is kind of where a lot of first time home buyers are looking, um, but we are seeing an uptick in the luxury market. So homes that are a million plus are as competitive, flying off the shelves, just like homes, um, kind of entry level three to four hundred thousand dollar homes, which that was also a big change. Typically, wow. the luxury market homes would sit a little bit longer. There would be um, more likely that it would you know, sell for a little bit under the listed price. There's more negotiations. Um, we are talking about, you know, jumbo loans and much bigger numbers. Um, so I think that is also something that's very new to this market, having such a large uh, portion of it being in that that luxury sales price. Yeah. And, and you mentioned some about uh, time that it's being listed or is on the market. That's another one that's so crazy for me to 
get my hands around. Like I, I, I bought my house maybe like four or five, maybe five years ago. And like, I remember we visited it twice. We thought about it. <laughs> like we looked at some other houses and then we made an offer and right. we went and we made an offer that was under what was listed. Um, what I'm hearing now is that is not the situation. Can you talk a little bit about how that's working now? It seems like you have to make a decision like right away. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we, it's all about preparation is kind of what we're teaching our clients right now is you do have to make very quick decisions. You may not get a chance to see it, you know, more than once. And, you know, it's getting a little bit better now, but you were only in the home for 15 to 20 minutes before the next person was rushing you out. And, you know, there, there was another set of buyers needing to look at it. So you really, you know, not only were you making the decision within 24, 48 hours, you only saw the home for a few minutes. So you take as many photos and videos as you can try to remember everything. Um, but we really, you know, the team that I work with open house, we specialize in first time home buyer education. And a big part of that is just putting our clients in a place where they are prepared to make those decisions quickly. So everything else, their pre-approval, you know, the criteria, they know the area they've driven around the neighborhood. They've done everything they can to to be in that position to immediately say yes or no. Um, right. And so, so things yeah. are staying on the market. Like you said, just a few days, just a few days is what we're seeing. Yeah. The trend um, that we have been seeing pretty much since last summer uh, is that a home is listed Thursday or Friday. Uh, it tends to get a lot of traffic Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday. And then we'll have a deadline where all the offers are due. They won't accept anything after as early as Sunday morning, and then sometimes as late as, you know, Monday evening. So that still gives you just one weekend to, to knock them all out. Um, and if you're looking at multiple properties, you know, balancing and then scheduling all of that, you know, it can definitely be hard. We tell our clients, you know, have a flexible schedule as much as you can. Work from home has been great for that, but treat it like a part-time job. You are going to be spending hours and hours on this week after week. Wow. And so, and then I would have to assume that given how competitive it is, people are mostly going above asking, right? For the most part, if it is, yeah. So we say, you know, if it's a a home that is likely to get multiple offers, right, it is in that first weekend of being listed. Um, We see a line out the door. We see a lot of uh, appointments scheduled. Um, You know, it's, it's kind of in that range. It's like a three bedroom, two bath in central Austin within, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of downtown priced under 500,000, all of those factors. Yes. It's likely going to get multiple offers. Yes. You will likely have to go five, 10, maybe even 15% over the sales price and waive a lot of your contingencies. Um, so it's a little bit riskier for the buyer. You do have to be very prepared. Um, and the biggest hurdle that we've been seeing is just the amount of capital that you need. Previously, you could, you know, purchase a house with maybe 15 to 20,000 in the bank, you have your 3% down payment, you have a little bit for closing costs and inspections, and that's pretty much it. Now, the big kind of hot word is appraisal waivers, um, which can account for an additional 15, 20,000 or more. What does that mean? That basically means that, you know, when you're buying a home, you have your bank or a lender, uh, loaning you the majority of, of the funds for the for the purchase, correct? So they hire a third-party uh, appraiser to go out and provide an estimated value of the home. And they will only loan you 
what that appraisal appraiser says it is worth. Mm. So the home is listed, for example, at 400,000, you bid 420 with a full waiver. And then the appraiser comes out and says, I think it's worth 405. You are now responsible as the buyer to make up that $15,000 difference in cash. Oh, so that's what's happening often because the market is so, I guess, a little crazy right now that you have to make up that that difference of maybe having to go above asking or just having to pay a little more than you might have had to a few years ago. Correct. Yes. The market, you know, is appreciating so quickly. We used to we used to calculate appreciation year over year, right? We're literally calculating it month over month. So taking into account, you know, a 25% appreciation in a year is about 2% a month. So you can kind of cushion in an additional 2% price. And that's usually kind of where the uh, appraisals are coming in. They're, they're calculating it based on the rear view, whereas you as a buyer and and realtors are kind of looking into the future, right? You're going to be the new owner of the home. What's going to happen in the next six months, 12 months, five years. And so, you know, obviously I don't expect you to know all the (laughs) answers to this, but just as someone who's like talking to a lot of people and, and, and meeting a lot of people who are buying or selling, like, what is the word about what's driving this? You know, we've, we've had a lot of home value increases in Austin for several years. So there's that baseline of just like, it's been increasing for a while, but it seems like you're also describing something that's gotten a lot crazier in the past year. Um, what's the narrative <laughs> you're all, you're kind of yeah, pulling together I mean, there's personally. No one reason, right? No one factor that's causing this. It's a multitude of factors. So, um, you know, Austin's economy is great. We're a tech hub now. We're sort of the, um, you know, Southern Silicon Valley. Um, so that's bringing a lot of business to here, a lot of em- employers here and a lot of people, a lot of, you know, employees or people looking to start a business. It's great city for a startup. Um, so we have a lot of people moving here from out of state, even within the state, people from Houston, people from Dallas. Um, a lot of people are working from home now and that may not be as comfortable in a 500 square foot studio apartment as it was two years ago where you were out of the house all the time. Right. So definitely the pandemic has had a huge effect on that here. People want a backyard for their dogs. They want a separate office space. You know, when kids were being homeschooled, having a classroom was really important. Um, Yeah. So just a lot of demand with, you know, buyers, not only locally um, needing to get additional space, but from external factors as well. Yeah. And so obviously this indicates that there's some shortage of supply, right? (laughs) Like there's just not, it seems like there's not enough housing for everyone who's moving here and wants it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, I think what a lot of people don't know is that in the new construction realm, um, you know, new homes have been behind on construction for years, close to 10 years. So I think that uh, in conjunction with the amount of buyers that, you know, kind of came out of the woodwork in the last year, um, just really brought that to a halt where new builds were six to 12 months behind on construction um, because they were inundated with so many contracts that they just weren't able to keep up. Um, I actually have a client now who signed a contract in January on a dirt lot. There was nothing there and they still haven't even started building her house yet. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, I think that everyone expects to a certain extent, it's like, okay, whatever a builder tells you it's going to be done, like I'm going to add a few months to that, right? But it does seem like this is a growing problem if we're in this housing shortage and obviously we want these homes to be built. Is it just that they have so much, and you said this has been a problem for a while, like why? Is it just that there's so much work to do? Is it, I know permitting, I've heard it can be crazy in Austin. Like, uh, is there not enough people to build? Like all of it? What do you see? Yes, definitely. Austin permitting is um, a big contributor. Um, Again, I hate to blame this so much on COVID, but it it is there. Um, You know, with city inspectors, they will not enter a home under construction if there's anyone else in the home. Mm. So, you know, rescheduling that can be difficult. Plus, you're losing a day of construction when no one else could be there. Um, trades are, are very difficult to come by now. And we're seeing that, um, not even in new construction, but, um, you know, in remodeling, um, it's tough to find contractors, plumbers, electricians, they're all backlogged, um, even material shortages, lumber, I'm sure everyone's heard lumber is very expensive. Um, they're just, you know, there have been a lot of factors to that getting, uh, materials, brought into the city takes a lot longer than it used to. There are more checkpoints. Um, and yeah, limiting the amount of people that could be within a confined space, you know, once the walls go up on a house, you're in a confined space. So electricians can't be there when the plumbers are there. They have to have Mm -hmm. separate days. So obviously there's a lot to unpack there. You've got COVID, a growing tech economy, not enough housing, city rules and regulations. Ask anyone about the root of our current housing problems and you will get a long list of answers. That's why we're going to be spending the next few episodes of this podcast diving deep into all of them, starting back more than 100 years ago and highlighting a few key moments that have really come to define our current housing situation. But before we do that, I wanted to spend the rest of this episode really laying the groundwork and explaining where we are right now. Perhaps no news headline better defines my anxieties, and I think those of many Austinites, than this one I read on KXAN the other day. Austin may soon be the least affordable place outside California to own a home. Oof, (laughs) that one is hard to read. And, And then there's this one from KUT. Working a minimum wage job in Austin, you'd have to work 152 hours a week to afford a two bedroom apartment. But what do we mean when we talk about housing affordability anyway? Affordable for who? That's what I talked to Woody Rogers about earlier this month. Woody is the research manager at Housing Works Austin, a local affordable housing advocacy organization that aims to increase the supply of affordable housing in Austin. One way they do that is by studying affordable housing and producing all kinds of really great reports on our housing stock here, which I've been furiously diving into to prepare for this podcast. Okay, let's go ahead and listen to that interview with Woody. So to start, I want to go through a few terms before we dive into like the specific data of where we're at now around housing affordability in Austin. Mm -hmm. I think like the biggest question I get when I'm sharing data and statistics from the city or talking about housing affordability in general, people always ask like, what do you mean by housing affordability, right? And so I've heard from like the experts, there's kind of like a capital A affordability and a lowercase a affordability. What, what does that mean? What Can you describe those two and, and what that means when we talk about affordable housing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And, and so when we refer to the difference between a capital A and small A affordable, small A affordable just is for everyone. An affordable home is one in which your household will not spend more than 30% of their monthly income on housing costs alone. Um, so anything that is a home where you're not spending more than 30% of your income towards rent, mortgage costs, utilities, et cetera, that would be deemed small A affordable in this case. Big A affordable refers to housing that is made affordable through subsidies provided by the government or some other entity. Um, and it's usually tied to some sort of um, restriction based on the household's income to allow them to uh, afford that unit or, or home um, at what is usually below market rate um, pricing. Got it. Okay. So the capital A affordability is what we think about when we think about government affordable housing, like at, whereas the lowercase one is more just for the average person that's saying, oh, why is housing so unaffordable in Austin? Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking for exactly. an affordable place to live. Got it. Yep. Um, and then another one that comes up a lot with this that I want to start to break down is this medium family income or MFI, because I feel like oftentimes when we talk about affordable housing, it's couched in this is affordable for people at this MFI or this MFI. What does that mean? And maybe we can start to include some of Austin's numbers in here. Yeah, sure. So MFI stands for median family income, and it is the... Uh, the, um, it's designated by the housing, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, HUD, um, and it kind of mandates uh, the different um, amounts that capital A affordable housing developments can charge, um, can set those income restrictions at. Um, so for 2021, um, the MFI, and it's usually based on a four-person household, it's the kind of this, the gold standard, um, that most um, developments use uh, to kind of, you know, as the baseline, it's a four-person household. The median family income in the Austin MSA in 2021 is $98,900. Um, and when, usually when we talk about income-restricted, subsidized housing, um, that's 80% median family income and below. So families, uh, households that make 80% of $98,900 or below for a four-person family, which is $79,100 in 2021. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, so a lot of times when I'm looking at this, um, you know, when I hear about a new affordable housing project being built or the city's talking about policy, then they couch it in terms of these percentages. So they might say things like we want this affordable housing complex or we want this housing to be affordable for people making 80 percent, which is pretty close to the median versus mm -hmm. sometimes they might say, you know, what, we want this to be really available to the people who need it the most. And it might be more like 30 percent or 20 percent. And those are people who are making very, very little income and, and perhaps are most in need of a heavy, heavily subsidized housing, right? Yeah, definitely. There's kind of a, some cuts, typical cutoffs. 30% um, median family income below is kind of considered to be um, very low income households. 50 or 60% MFI and below is usually the kind of cutoff for what many refer to as low income households. And then 80% MFI and below is where that affordable housing, big A affordable housing really gets thrown around. Um, 
80 to 120% MFI. Uh, we call that missing middle housing sometimes, um, workforce housing. Um, but these are all just terms that can be, you know, used kind of casually by people in the housing world that can be definitely confusing if you don't, um, you know, have the full picture of what MFI means and, and where the kind of percentages. Right. That, right. That 80 to 120, I think a lot of people don't realize, or, or maybe they are now since Austin is becoming so expensive, is that 80 to 120, which is people making a little bit more than median, but given the cost of housing in Austin, that could be teachers, that could be, you know, these are, like you said, this is workforce housing. People, these are, these are housing that people might not think might need affordable housing, but yeah. given the state of our housing market, they do. Often. And typically, typically subsidized housing doesn't usually go above 80% MFI. So that is another reason why it's kind of become, becoming more relevant, especially as Austin is becoming more and more expensive um, and unaffordable for a lot of families. Got it. Okay, great. Um, now I want to get a little bit into some of the numbers. Mm -hmm. So Housing Works, um, you all produce this district by district analysis each year, where you kind of look at the different city council districts and, and see a whole bunch of different demographic data, actually. It's all focused around housing, but you're also looking at things like poverty rates and, and things like that. Do you want to give a quick description of what, what happens, what are you looking for in this district by district analysis? Yeah, so we look at, um, you know, a bunch of different uh, socioeconomic indicators, as well as just like where the affordable housing units, subsidized affordable housing units are located. Um, and then we want to break it down by district so that policymakers, advocates, anyone um, that's really focused on local housing issues can uh, have a very tangible breakdown um, by Austin specific jurisdictions. Um, so, uh, and it also allows us to see some trends um, based on you know, where you live and your district uh, related to housing and other, and other factors. Right, so this 2021, is it, did you look at data from 2020, like the full year, or what's the cutoff date, just so people know, since it seems like housing is changing every month here. What's kind of the, the time frame you looked at for this yes. analysis? So most of these, um, most of these numbers actually come from uh, 2019 data. Um, there are some that come from 2020, but uh, since, you know, a lot of the data comes from the Census Bureau, uh, it's the way that they do their surveys is it's kind of delayed in time in terms of when they release the data, um, as well as some data comes from early 2020. So especially numbers around median home sale price, um, uh, the point in time count that, that ECHO conducted was in January 2020, and that's the numbers we use for um, unsheltered homeless uh, by district. Got it. So yeah, a lot of the numbers do not, I would say, completely capture the picture that's happening today in Austin, but right. gives an indication of where the trends were going, especially before the pandemic, and a little bit looking within uh, the COVID-19 pandemic era, I guess. Okay. Uh, so I want to go through some of the key points that I saw in this report. Um, one, you looked at poverty. Mm -hmm. um, 
let's talk a little bit about that. It says there on this bullet point that poverty went down from 15.3% to 14.4% in 2020, um, while the median family income continued to rise. Like you mentioned, it's now at, or at least in this report said 97,600. Um, talk a little bit about that. Cause there's also a bit of disparity there and where that's happening across the city, right? If you look at the entire city, that's the picture, but that's not necessarily the picture at the district by district level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, poverty as a whole, and as well as median family incomes, poverty has gone down, median family incomes have, have risen across the city as a whole. Uh, and that, you know, could be a number of factors um, contributing to that trend. Um, you know, a lot of people are moving to Austin, uh, with usually higher incomes because it's become so unaffordable, you have to have kind of a higher price point to get into the city. Um, as well as, you know, many families who don't have as high incomes are being um, forced out of Austin because of the high housing costs. Um, we don't know exactly, we, get, we can't pinpoint the data is, you know, we're, we're still early in the process and it's hard to get really specific data on those kinds of trends, but those could be some factors um, resulting in lower poverty rates and higher median family incomes. Additionally, the poverty rates um, in some districts have gone down by much more than in other districts. Uh, district, um, uh, in, in all but one district, District 8 poverty rates fell, but District 8 didn't fall. And then just, just thinking um, historically and, and, and uh, with some other factors, uh, poverty rates in districts one, two, three, and four are much higher than in the other six districts. Um, and those districts also have the highest percentage of people of color, which is kind of, you know, the trend that we've seen historically and is very worrying and, and one that obviously needs to be addressed in some ways. Right. I'm looking here at the district one, um, snapshot and the median family income is only 59,000. So, you know, far below what we're talking about there for the um, average for the city. And then, you know, if you look at district 10, which is in West Austin, the median family income is 159. So you can kind of see there, obviously a, a wide, a wide difference between those two city council districts, which is something, you know, that policymakers, and we've been talking about in Austin for a long time is this inequity between the East and West side um, yes. with housing and yeah. Okay. Um, I also want to point out some other things that were on this report um, is we talked a lot about, um, and you mentioned before, this affordability level, I guess the goal is that people ideally shouldn't be paying more than 30% of their income on housing, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of like a national goal. Yes. Um, and you can see here, it says in the report that um, you're seeing 45% of renters and 22% of homeowners in Austin are paying more than 30% of their income on housing costs, um, which is really high, especially for the renter department there. I mean, yeah. that's almost half, you know, of right. renters that are paying above that affordability level. Yeah. Um, so those, those, those households that are paying more than 30% of their income are referred to as housing cost burden. Um, and so when you hear that term around, that's what that means. They're paying more than 30% of their income towards housing. If they're extremely cost burdened, and they're paying 50%, half of their income towards housing costs alone. Um, 
And so, yeah, this, this is one of the indicators that we can kind of see how great the um, divide between wealth is in, in Austin. So, you know, almost half of the renters in, in across the city are cost burden. Almost a quarter of the renters are extremely cost burden. Um, and then in districts four, five, and nine, 40% of all households are cost burden. And that's regardless of their tenure, renter, owner status. So, you know, 40%, four, four in 10 in households in those districts pay too much for housing. Um, and so again, this is something that we can look at to see um, the disparities in the wealth gap and maybe that those poverty rates falling aren't a true indication of, you know, progress being made um, in terms of overall wealth for households across the city. Um, additionally, I should mention that these numbers are delayed. Um, uh, these ones even more so because the cost burden data comes from a different um, methodology that the Census Bureau uses. So we, you know, there <laughs> we could see vastly different numbers based on the pandemic, um, and especially coming out of the pandemic. You know, there have been a lot of a lot of talk about moratoriums towards evictions, but uh, those are ending soon, right? Pretty soon, and. Um, it's definitely a huge issue, you know, people not being able to afford their homes, especially during an economic kind of struggle of the pandemic. Exactly. Yes. And, and Austin, you know, this is a conversation we have a lot, too, about the difference and the disparities between renters and homeowners in our city. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of city council discussions and conversations tend to focus around homeowners, but um, my understanding is about half or slightly more than half of residents who live in Austin are, are renting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. We have that um, we have that breakdown. Yeah, fifty one percent homeowners, forty nine percent renters. Um, and I think the trend is actually going. We're we're moving more towards a renter, uh, at least region. Um, I'm not sure what the trend is for the Austin city in particular, but I think it's, you can, it's safe to say that more people are having to rent due to the, you know, the the difficulty in entering the housing market as an owner um, right now because of high costs. Mm hmm. And then um, another key thing that is um, mentioned in this report is you kind of been tracking um, where our city's affordable housing units are located. Um, again, from the report, it says 68% of all affordable housing units in Austin are located in just four of the 10 city council districts. And then this one, you know, I think is the, the biggest a glaring market that 22% of all affordable units in the city are located in District 1 alone, um, while District 6, which is in West Austin, um, only has 3%, and District yeah. 8 has 1%. Yeah, so this is where we see that east-west divide again. Um, like you said, 68% are located in only four districts, um, and I believe those four districts are located in the Eastern Crescent, mostly, if not all. Um, additionally, we, in addition to the district by district um, annual report. We also have been conducting work on the, uh, to track progress that the city is making towards um, their blueprint goals. Um, that They came out with the strategic housing blueprint in 2017 and it has 10 year goals to build um, something like 135,000 housing units throughout the city. Um, and what we've seen so far over the past two years is that that disparity is still happening um, in terms of new housing, new affordable housing production for districts in the Western part of the city, they're not nearly meeting their goals at the same 
rates that districts in the in the eastern crescent are or in the east generally are um, right and when we talk about affordable housing there do we mean subsidized affordable housing or just in general affordable housing yeah we mostly mean subsidized affordable housing i'm talking 80 percent mfi and below um <clears throat> uh the the blueprint does does capture market what we call market market rate affordable housing units um, as well as the subsidized income restricted units but again, because housing prices are so expensive right now um, to buy your house and, and rent is actually going way up um, in 2021 um, after kind of dipping a little bit in 2020, uh, a lot of the new developments are at a higher price point and not affordable to those families making 80% of median family income and below. So a lot of that, that housing in that income range is, is subsidized. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up the strategic housing blueprint. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about that. So again, this might sound like a really boring or wonky thing for people that haven't been um, paying attention to this. But a few years ago, as you mentioned, city council uh, came up with this number, 135,000 units, as far as kind of like the gap, I guess, Mm -hmm. that they identified in our city um, and and kind of had this goal that if we're able to... uh, build that many new units, I guess, in 10 years that we can be a more affordable city. I'm not exactly sure what the, what the end goal even really is just that we are missing a lot of housing, uh, given how many new people are moving here and how much we've grown. Um, is that accurate? of a? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's the goal is that if we build, you know, this amount of affordable housing, it would meet the, the growth, um, in each of the different, um, housing markets, you know, for each income range. It doesn't, I don't know how much, uh, how much, what factor was being thought into, um, you know, the really, I, I, they probably couldn't have with, like saw the um, really in huge increases in home sale prices and, and rents that have been happening over the past year or two. Right. It makes me think that we might, the number might even need to be scaled up a bit, but um, let's, let's go through a few of, um, I have the 2019 scorecard, which mm-hmm. I believe is the most recent one you all have produced. Yes. Um, and it kind of shows some of the areas, a lot of them, you know, we are behind on um, one of them was Again, this goal of new housing units should be throughout each district. We kind of touched on that already. That seems to be a goal that we are not um, really reaching. It still um, is heavily focused on the east side. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, I want to run through a few of the other affordable housing goals. So one of them is 20,000 housing units affordable to 30% MFI or below. Um, and this report says... 118 units um, were built, I guess, in 2019, which was less than 1% of the 10-year goal to build 20,000 units by 2028. Um, So pretty far behind in that respect, in 2019 at least. Um, I don't Um, know if, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I was just going to add, we're working on the the 2020 scorecard now, so I might get some numbers um, confused and I don't want to, you know, release the the numbers before we finalize them. But um, for 2019, over the over 2019 and 2018, 210 units out of what should have been 4,000 units ideally um, were built in that 30% MFI and below income range. Um, um, and additionally, 
interestingly, in the 61 to 80% MFI range, only 605 units were built out of um, what should have been 3,000 units. So um, those two income brackets have really not seen the rate of production for, of affordable housing units that we really need to have in order to meet, meet those goals. Um, however, um, the income range um, 31 to 60% MFI have been meeting goals or, or mostly meeting goals to, to build their, you know, I think it should be 5,000 units. They've built almost 4,000 um, over the two years. Uh, and that really is because of um, some of the city incentive programs, um, as well as housing tax credits, focusing on um, the, the income restriction going up to 50% or 60% MFI. And there have been a lot of developments that have used those um, subsidies over the past two years. Oh, okay. So can can you talk a little bit more about that? So, so city council has some, um, or our city has a few subsidies or incentives for like a private developer or a nonprofit developer to build in that range and get like a, some kind of benefit? Yeah, a lot of them, um, a lot of them come through um, some sort of development incentive. So that could be a density bonus to mm. allow for, you know, greater um, floor to area ratio. And in exchange, you could get more affordable housing. So, you know, you can build more units, but some of them have to be affordable to um, these families that are making 60% MFI. Um, additionally, um, some of the most used, most commonly used programs that get into those deeper affordability levels of 30% MFI and below or 60% MFI and below um, are at the federal level and at, through the tax credit program. Um, and they're very competitive, but uh, increasingly people are using um, them to kind of enhance their, their affordable housing developments and add additional layers of subsidies that make it, make them able to go down to 60% or 50% MFI. Okay. And the people who are building in this level, are they, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this or not, but are they private developers or are they like Habitat for Humanity or, you know, kind of these mission-based nonprofit developers? Yeah, I, I can't say with 100% confidence, I guess, but I think that especially those um, that are using the kind of uh, deeper, more competitive subsidies will, are more likely to be kind of nonprofit mission-driven developers. But those getting the development incentives are probably a mix of both, but maybe mostly private for-profit developers that are just trying to get, you know, increased something um, in their developments for, and then they kind of just in exchange, we'll get, uh, we will get affordable units for Got the it. incentive. Yeah. And then on the other two, you know, we mentioned, so that's the 31 to 60%. That's the one where we're kind of have been meeting our goal on that 30% MFI and below and the 61 to 80% where we're way off. How are those expected to be built or hope to be built? Is that through city bond programs or nonprofits? Is the city building things itself? Like, who, who's responsible, I guess, for what's our hope in building those units? Um, so for the 30% MFI and below, that, that one's really hard to get to. You have to really layer a number of subsidies on top of each other. And, and most of the developments um, that are able to reach that deep affordability uh, are using those low-income housing tax credits, which give you know, quite a bit of, of subsidy to um, make the development 
um, work. And are uh, coming from the federal government. That's not a from federal, the city of yeah. Got it. Though um, <clears throat> I would say the majority of them aren't just using those housing tax credits to reach that affordability level. They have to, you know, add on, get a mix to make it all work. The financing for those um, deeply affordable developments can be really complicated and have to be very creative in a lot of a lot of ways. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen the production meet the, the goals so far. Um, yeah, the 61 to 80% uh, goal is an interesting one. I think that partially it is um, because we are meeting or nearly meeting goals in the 31 to 60% range and that income restriction for the subsidy does, it is capped at 50 or 60% MFI for a lot of these programs that are producing those units. Um, so that is good, obviously, um, you know, but um, households in that range, a lot of the market rate affordable units that we see are in that 61 to 80% or 80 to 100% MFI range. Um, but obviously that's not meeting the need um, at right. least over 2018 and 2019. So it is something that I think maybe a new development could focus on that range. I don't know. It's definitely a, a policy kind of conundrum, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, when I was looking at this, one of the things that was most surprising to me is that we seem to be behind on goals that of the market rate, like of the non-subsidized housing, like, um, you know, it said that, um, we have this goal of 25,000 units at 81 to 120% MFI and 50,000 units at 121% MFI. And both of those, we seem to be, you know, not falling quite as short as the other ones, but not doing great on. And these are ostensibly, you know, a private developer would just build housing. <laughs> you know, we're talking above 121%. Uh, that one was surprising to me because I would have thought, well, that's housing that should just be happening <laughs> in a city that's growing as much as us, like that's non-subsidized housing. But that seems to even be an area where even for the people who could afford housing, there's not enough housing being built. Is that like an accurate interpretation of that? Yeah, I think so. I would, I would say that, um, you know, the way that housing developments work, it takes a while for them because the way we count developments is when for this report is when they are completed. So when someone can actually move in or when they were sold or however. Um, so, you know, development of housing developments usually take, I'm, I might be totally off, but like one to three or four years, depending on the size and scale of the development. Um, so I would say that part of that, uh, the lacking um, progress towards those middle and high income unit goals is something related to that. You know, the, the, the blueprint was adopted in 2017. We're only looking at 2018 and 2019. 2020, of course, will be somewhat impacted by what 2020 was and 2021 will probably be the same way. So there are a lot of factors going into kind of these goals not quite being met at, you know, over two years at this point. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, goals in goal three for the middle and high income units started to kind of meet the pace they're expected to over the next few years because of the demand of housing, um, because of the growth in Austin. Yeah. And just before we close then, you mentioned like these are a few years back. What are in general you looking at trend-wise for Austin or what should people be keeping an eye out for in the future? And I guess kind of tied to, tied to that, like, are we like many other cities in the country or um, kind of 
how do we fit in general? Like, is this something, are these trends something you're seeing in cities like Austin all over America or? Um, so I, I will say that uh, based on work in, in for the 2020 scorecard, which we hope to release at the end of August, early September, um, the trends are definitely um, increasing in terms of uh, those kind of higher MFI levels. Um, however, for, you know, affordable 80% MFI and below, the city is still not really keeping track to meet its goals. Um, and with the difficult economic situation coming through with the pandemic, uh, it's hard to say how affordable housing development will be impacted over the next five years um, because you know development timelines can, can stretch that long. So I think it's a I think we're in a kind of a tough spot. Um, obviously, we need the affordable housing, and we need we need we need it pretty fast. Um, but it is it's a difficult problem because it's just so hard to develop in such a high priced market right now. Um, I do think that Austin is both kind of meeting the national trend, but also unique in that, you know, the Austin region is the fastest growing region in the country right now. Um, so the demand is really high for housing of all costs. Um, however, uh, Austin is not, like, like most countries across the country, most cities across the country, Austin is not able to, um, because of the lack of um, financing available to affordable housing developers, is able to really build as much um, affordable housing as, as we would like to. And, and the, the burden is, I mean, the, the blame can't be, you know, pinpointed to the city or the county or anyone, really, because um, it's just really hard to get all the financing to make sense. And especially because of the lack of federal investment in affordable housing over the past four plus years, um, it's just, there's just not enough money for the housing that we do need, especially at those really deeply affordable levels. So it's a difficult problem. And I think that it's, we have to focus on it more locally, but also nationally in order to really make sure that we're addressing it across the country and in Austin. And that is nearly our show for today. But before we end, I wanted to share some comments I got from you all. In preparation for this episode, I asked on Instagram, what are your greatest fears for Austin? And here's what some of you had to say. Affordability and a changing cultural landscape of our city. That we will be too slow to house our homeless community. It becoming not affordable to minorities and artists, folks who have created the culture here. Trend of lack of empathy for displaced people in this tech boom. Growth in an unsustainable way. Continuing loss of non-white residents. Urban sprawl. Historically black and brown neighborhoods being pushed out of ATX. And last but not least, local frontline workers will be priced out of their homes slash apartments due to rising living costs. These are fears that I have as well, and I think a lot of Austinites do. So like I said earlier, this is what we're going to be talking about on the podcast over the next several weeks, trying to get a better understanding of how this happened and what people are doing to stop it. 
In our next episode, we're going to talk about Austin's infamous 1928 master plan and the so-called urban renewal projects that impacted our city's black population and the entire east side for generations to come. I hope you'll join us. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. The show is hosted by me, Amy Stansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. One quick friendly request on this. If you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band.